privilege to share God's word with you again this morning. Uh, for those of you that are visiting, just to give you a context of what I'm going to say this morning and what I'm going to preach into, um, we have been doing a series for the last six weeks on the person and the power of the Holy Spirit. And we've been looking at different aspects of the person of the Holy Spirit. We started by uh, rooting our understanding in the fact that the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity and all that that means. And Clive did two wonderful sessions uh, looking at the Holy Spirit working in the Old Testament and the Holy Spirit working in the New Testament and what the expectation of people was and, and uh, some wonderful examples, for example, in the Old Testament of, Bez, how, what was his name again? Bezaliel, what? Basilel. Basilel, the, the silversmith who worked in the temple empowered by the Holy Spirit and that God can really use anyone. Balaam he used for his purposes under the power of his Holy Spirit. And then we looked at the New Testament too. Um, Tim did a wonderful session on hindrances, stopping us receiving the Holy Spirit. And I also had a look at the personality of the Spirit. Uh, he's a person, so he has personality. And I, I had a look at what that looked like and what the Bible says about who the Holy Spirit is. And then last week I began to look at the subject of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And um, I said to you that all of us as believers... The, one of the most powerful experiences we can have is being baptized in the Holy Spirit. How many of us would say we don't want to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to live our lives? Of course, all of us as believers want to say, we want to be empowered. We want the Holy Spirit's power, don't we? I mean, and and it's, it's such a wonderful privilege that we can enjoy as New Testament believers that we can be empowered by the Holy Spirit. And I said to you last week, unfortunately, the baptism of the Holy Spirit has been one of the things the experience of the baptism of the Holy Spirit has been one of the things that historically has divided believers in the church and has become a source, instead of blessing, a great source of division. And so I said the, the, the contention has been over three basic areas. First of all, when the baptism of the Holy Spirit takes place. Secondly, what happens in that initial experience and what the evidence of the baptism is. And third, I said to you, the process that you go through in receiving the Holy Spirit in baptism. And that's where the church has been divided largely, is on the when, the what, and the process of what happens. And so I said to you that there are four historical views that have been uh, in the church over the centuries. And the first of those is the classic Orthodox or Catholic view that uh, you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit as an infant when you are baptized. Uh, and then that is confirmed later in your life when you go through a process of confirmation. So that's what Catholics and Orthodox believers would hold to. Uh, the classic evangel evangelical view, which is the second view, says that you, actually, you are baptized in the Holy Spirit at conversion. When you are saved, that's when the, when the baptism of the Holy Spirit happens in your life. And then you can have subsequent infillings of the Holy Spirit, different experiences where God fills you once again, and you, and you feel that uh, sense of His presence. Thirdly, I said there was, um, uh, there's a third view, which is called the second work of grace, which the Nazarene church and other holiness churches uh, hold to. And they would say that really, evidence of the baptism of the Spirit is God's work in us. So the, when the evidence of the Holy Spirit's baptism is that we can resist temptation, that we are witnesses for Christ and all these things. So they, they look at the fruit of the Spirit more. And they say that's what we need to be looking for. Then fourthly, I said there's the classic Pentecostal view, which is that baptism in the Spirit is a second experience 
that we must desire with all of our hearts after conversion, and that the evidence of that is speaking in tongues. And that's what a classic, classic Pentecostal view holds to. And so my heart and those of us that are preaching uh, this series in this church, our heart is this, that rather than the subject of the Holy Spirit and the baptism of the Holy Spirit being something that divides us, our desire is that lovingly we can find unity and we can move together, whatever our previous experience of the Holy Spirit is, that we can love the person of the Holy Spirit much more deeply and much more wonderfully than we do right now. And we're committing ourselves as a preaching team to take us all on a journey just to experience more on the fullness of who the Holy Spirit is in our lives. Amen? So I want to say to you, whatever your background, whether you've had no church background, where you, whether you come from one of those, those particular points of view, I just want to ask you this morning to allow God to speak to you wherever you're at and to show Him more of Himself in the person of the Holy Spirit. All right? And secondly, I said to you that we weren't going to choose one particular uh, scripture, in, in, particularly in the book of Acts, to try and just preach that one scripture because unfortunately that's what's happened is that people holding to a particular point of view, will choose one scripture to say, well, you see, the scripture shows my point of view is right. And I said to you, we're going to choose a number of scriptures in the New Testament that all speak about the expense of the baptism of the Holy Spirit just to see something of the fullness of God and how He wants to bless us as His family. And I said to you that whatever our theology is, God is much greater. God is much bigger. God is much more wonderful. He does immeasurably more than we can hope or dream or imagine. And whatever our experiences of the Holy Spirit is, God wants more for us. Amen. I am Pentecostal at this moment when I'm asking for amen. All right. So here's the second. We, so the first scripture we looked at, obviously, was Acts chapter 2, which is the first outpouring on the day of Pentecost when the Jews have gathered to celebrate the giving of the law, they discover a small church in Jerusalem that is doing all sorts of weird and wonderful stuff and they're speaking in all their languages that they can understand from all over the, 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 the Mediterranean basin and they come and they say, what is going on? These people are speaking in the tongues that we can hear and understand and they say, oh, they must just be drunk. It's, and Peter gets up under the power of the Holy Spirit, begins to preach Jesus and he says, no, these men are not drunk. Of course they're not drunk. They're full of the Holy Spirit and this has all got to do with the one that you crucified, Jesus, the one that you welcomed into Jerusalem with your palms on the donkey. You welcomed him and he said, come, you're the king. You're the, the same one who did all that. You killed him. And he's the one that is responsible, and this is the evidence of what Joel prophesied hundreds of years ago. In the last days, I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. And so we looked at how that experience drew believers, the religious and the unconverted, and they all were amazed at the work of God. God is so kind. He wants to pour out His Spirit on everybody. And here's another example of a third group of people that God wants to pour His Spirit out upon. And God wants to pour His Spirit out upon the ones that we least expect. So I've called this message, Mind the Gap. And we're going to look at Acts chapter 8. Here we go. Verse 9. There was a man named Simon. Not Winston, Simon. Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip 
as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing great signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. And he said, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part in, nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord, that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that in you the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. So much for Christians being nice and polite to everybody, right? Peter is not. Simon answered, Pray for me, Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken of the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So Father, I pray that you'd help me right now to preach your word faithfully and truthfully. Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd come and refresh us in your word. I pray that you would fill us again with power uh, as we seek to know you better. And I pray, Lord, whatever is from you this morning would fall in our hearts and produce much fruit, good fruit, a harvest in our lives. And I pray that it was not whatever I might say that is not from you would fall and die. But we're looking for fruit, Lord. And we pray that it would be the fruit and evidence of the power of your Spirit in our lives. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a fascinating story to me because... It really is, is describing the gospel coming to Samaria. And uh, there are a number of things that are described in this passage that are most unusual. And I'd like to address some of those before I talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And the first is, is this. You've heard me say many times in this church, once saved, always saved. That you cannot lose your salvation when you come to the cross and you are saved. All right? And yet here we have an example of someone called Simon who was, seemed to be a believer and was baptized, and yet, to our great surprise, in a very short space of time, it becomes obvious that his faith is not real. So how does that work? Well, the first thing I want to say is this, that in the, when we read the New Testament, when you read the Scriptures, it's extremely rare for the Scripture to speak about a faith which is not real. It is very much the exception. Uh, in the New Testament, Christians are not encouraged and invited to endlessly doubt whether they really believe or not. Uh, that's not the tone of the Scripture. So I always say it like this. You know in your knower whether you are saved or not. Your knower is deep inside of you, that place that no one else can see. You know in that place whether you are saved or not. And I'm not here to accuse anyone this morning. I'm not here to get you to cause to doubt your salvation, all I'm saying to you is this, is that if you are saved, 
you know in your knower with the knowledge that no one else can take away from you. And the scripture puts it like this in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1. It says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not yet seen. If you are saved, there's an immediate assurance that comes to your heart by the power of the Spirit, and you just know that you are saved. All right? So I, I trust that uh, if any of you, you doubt your salvation this morning, that when you leave, you would not doubt. Or right now, you would not doubt. That in your knower, you would know by the power of the Holy Spirit that Christ is who He says He is. So that's my starting point, and I believe that's the starting point of the Scripture. But I want to say this points us to another thing that there is such a thing as pretended faith. Simon is an example of being a great pretender. Freddie Mercury was also a pretender. He sang about being the great pretender, being in love with someone and pretending that you're not in love with that person. That's what Freddie Mercury sang about. But here's the original great pretender. Simon, the magician, who pretended he was saved and he wasn't really. You see... What you claim to believe, you are the only person that knows whether you truly believe that or not. And so that's why I say it's possible for some to have a pretended faith. It's very interesting to me. I had a look at the original words here. And where this, this word that Luke uses in the book of Acts when he talks about Simon believing is only used one other place in the New Testament. It's used again by Luke in the, in, when he writes his gospel in... Um, he uses it in Luke 8.13 8, in the parable of the sower. You know the story of the parable of the sower? And he says, um, the ones on the, ro uh, 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 the rock are those, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root, and they believe, same word, only for a while, and when the time of testing comes, they fall away. It's the only two places in the New Testament that that word is used, as Luke uses it there, in Acts and in Luke 8. What is he saying? There's, a, there's an intellectual assent to the gospel that is not really a belief in your heart about the gospel. And he says, when the testing comes, those people fall away. That's pretended faith. That's not real faith. When you are saved with real faith, saving faith, when once saved like that, always saved. Are you with me? And so... I put it to you, when you look closely at the story of Simon, it's obvious why he pretended to believe. First, he didn't want to lose his influence, verse 11. Second, he was interested in Philip's great supernatural power, verse 6 and 7. Third, he was afraid that the town that had given him all this attention and said he was such a great person would stop doing that. How do I know that? Verse 8. And lastly, Philip seemed to have a supernatural power source that was much greater than anything that he himself had. Verse 13. That's why he pretended. Because he wanted the power. He wanted the power without going to the source of the power. So we read in the story when the apostles come from Jerusalem to pray for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on these Samaritans, he was greatly Interested, And the second thing I'd like to address, and that's why I said God wants to pour out His Spirit upon everyone, even those that we least expect. The fact that the apostles want to pray for the Samaritans is intriguing, and it's fascinating for a number of reasons. I'm sure you, you might be aware of this. Historically, the Jews and the Samaritans had this long-standing hatred and enmity. They'd had it for 500 years. They hated each other. And yet here the apostles are coming to pray for the very ones that historically they'd, hate, they'd, they'd 
born enmity towards. Why was that? Well, in some ways it goes right back to Jacob, uh, who was called Israel. Remember, he wrestled the angel and he had a name change. You remember, he had 12 sons. And um, those 12 sons became the 12 tribes. And Joseph, we know, was his favorite, which was uh, unfortunate because all the other brothers hated him and tried to do away with him. And you know the story in Genesis. But God intervenes and He preserves Joseph's life. Uh, but He uses Joseph to preserve everybody's life, all of, all of the Israelites. And before his death, Jacob comes and he gives Joseph a blessing. And you can read about the blessing in Genesis 49. And he says, Joseph will be a fruitful bough by a well. And so he prophesies this fruitfulness, fruitfulness over Joseph's life. And the blessing is worked out in land. What happens is that his two sons... Ephraim and Manasseh received the most fertile land out of all of the tribes. And that land is the land that the Samaritans eventually inherit. And we know later in the story that Israel is divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was called Israel, and it had its capital at a place called Shechem, and it was a very important place in Jewish history. And that became the city top. Um, mountaintop city of Samaria, the northern kingdom. It's where Samaria was. And the southern kingdom, uh, well, first of all, the northern kingdom was, co was conquered by the Syrians in 722, and they took its um, people into captivity, and then what they did is they brought other Gentile people into that city to cohabit with the Jews. And so we know that in 2 Kings 17, and they resettled the land. And what they did is they brought with them their own gods, and the Jews that were in that Samaritan area, they intermarried with these other tribes, and so they stopped worshipping Jehovah, they embraced the idols, and they intermarried, and we know that from Ezra 9, and we know that from Nehemiah 13. So the northern kingdom compromised. The southern kingdom was called Judah. And they also fell to Babylon in 600 B.C., and its people too were taken off into camp captivity, and that's where you get all those songs from, from the river, by the rivers of Babylon, where we laid down with all this longing to be restored back to uh, Jerusalem. And 70 years later, after they've been taken into captivity, 43,000 of them go back to rebuild Jerusalem, and we know the story again in Nehemiah and Ezra. And those people that were originally still in the Samaritan area that had intermarried, they resisted the others coming back, and they opposed them, and uh, they, they resisted this money, the, the, the worshipping of the one um, God that the, the Jews uh, believed. And for their part, the Jews detested them for the mixed marriages and for the worship of idols. And so from that time on, the Samaritans, who actually had Jewish roots, and the, 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 the Jewish believers from Judah were enmity. They, they hated each other. They, the one said to the other group, you've compromised. You, you used to be truthful and, and worship the one true God. Now you've, you've worshiping idols. And they kind of had this hatred and enmity that, that, um, that the, now was multiplied over 500 years. Do you see why this is so amazing? That in John 4, Jesus goes to the well and He speaks to a Samaritan woman. Do you see why it's so amazing? He is taking on a massive cultural thing that's been going on for 500 years. And he welcomes her as a daughter. Do you see why it's so amazing that Jesus talks about a parable of a good Samaritan? 
And he says to the Jews, the religious ones, you should be more like that good Samaritan, the one that you've hated for 500 years, that you want nothing to do with. His heart is more like the heart of God towards His people. Can you see why it's so amazing? And here we have the apostles going to pray for the Holy Spirit on a people group that they've not had much to do with or wanted to have anything to do with for 500 years. Why? Because God wants to pour out His Spirit on all flesh, even the ones we least expect. Our God is wonderful. He's so merciful and gracious and kind. And so the only one in the story that we see whose faith is not real is clearly Simon, not the Samaritans. And uh, he manages to convince all of them, so much so that even Philip baptizes him. But he doesn't really have any faith at all. He's just interested in making money and uh, getting supernatural power by any means that he can. And I love Peter. Uh, Peter, I think we should, we should have more Peters in our culturally correct society. We really should. Men and women who are brave enough just to say some things straight up. What does Peter say straight up? He says, you are a hungry pretender. He says, you do not have a changed heart. He says, you are wicked. You are falsely motivated. You are in great need of forgiveness, and you are in bondage to sin. That's what he says, straight up. And it seems Simon disappears with a repentant heart, doesn't it? It seems that he disappears out of the book of Acts with a repentant heart. He says, oh, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what I've said might come upon me. What you have said might come upon me. I mean, it seems like he's repented, but he hasn't. How do I know that? Well, I know that because there's a church father called Arrhenius who wrote about the first, the first century church, and he wrote a book called Against Heresies. And who was the main subject of his book? Simon the Magician, who went around sowing heresy into the early church. He didn't repent. He didn't change. He still wanted supernatural power, and he was doing it for the wrong reasons. And he spread heresy in the early church. You can go read it for yourself. Arrhenius' book called Against Heresies. You see, this story helps us to see what faith really is, before I speak about the baptism of the Spirit. Faith is not persuading Jesus' church to accept you on your terms. That's what Simon wanted. He wanted the church to accept them on his terms. Faith is this. Faith is knowing that Jesus is the unique Son of God and throwing yourself upon him as your only hope for forgiveness. That's faith. Faith is not coming with all your stuff and saying, oh, well, Jesus, accept me with all my stuff. And, you know, I don't really agree with you about that. And I don't really agree. But, but I, I want to kind of be sort of in this thing. But, but you, my only hope of salvation, no, I don't want to go that far. <laughs> That's not saving faith. Saving faith is Jesus. You are who you say you are. I have nothing of myself to please you. And I desperately throw myself on your mercy. That is saving faith. And so the great irony of the story is that the traditional enemies of the Jews, the hated Samaritans who had intermarried with others and compromised with idol worship, their faith proves to be real. That's the irony. It's the Samaritan converts who receive the Holy Spirit. They are the ones that are born again and regenerate. They are the ones in whom the Spirit is working and bringing them to an obvious, joyful, jubilant faith in Jesus. And I say that because Simon can see it. And because he can see the evidence of what God has done in them, he wants that. 
And yet it says that they hadn't fully received the Spirit, and that's why the apostles come to pray for the Samaritans. And I want to say again, when the Holy Spirit pours Himself out upon you, it is a conscious and obvious thing. I know that you can read in verse 18. They knew something was happening when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them. And so what I'm trying to describe to you this morning when we're talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not describing that work of the Spirit that brings us to faith. I'm talking about that work of the Spirit that seals faith in our lives. And I put it to you, it's the same thing that happened to Jesus. It's the same thing that happened to other believers in the New Testament. It doesn't have to take a long time. Uh, generally in the New Testament, Christians are consciously sealed with the Holy Spirit soon after coming to faith. There's not a big gap. That's why I said, mind the gap. We see from Acts 19 that you can ask about this experience. What does um, Paul say to the believers in Ephesus? Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. So they, they weren't aware of this conscious infilling. Uh, Galatians 3.2, what does um, Paul write in Galatians? Let me ask you this, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So you can look back on the experience, you can, you can remember it, it's something that's happened to you. Even Jesus was sealed by the Holy Spirit. Remember? He's baptized by John. And the Holy Spirit descends upon him like a dove and the voice comes from, from, from heaven and says, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. He's sealed by the Holy Spirit in an obvious way. The disciples are sealed by the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And so there is sometimes in the New Testament, there's a, it can be a gap between faith that saves us and an infilling of the Holy Spirit. And so I believe God wants that supernatural infilling for all of us as believers. Uh, and we need to mind the gap in our lives so there's not a long delay between our salvation and being filled with the Holy Spirit. And I want to put it to you that there was an obvious reason why God did delay in this case. But I want to say at the same time, I don't think we should see delays as normal. You know, that's what normally happens. You get saved and then after a long time you get filled with the Holy Spirit. Now I, I want to say we need to shorten the gap as much as we can. That we expect God to move in our lives powerfully by the baptism of the Holy Spirit as soon as He can. And so, I believe that God de delayed specifically in this case because He wanted everybody to see that what had happened in Jerusalem to the disciples was the same thing that He was doing on the Samaritans. He didn't want there to be two churches. There had been two historical kingdoms, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. He didn't want there to be two churches, a church in Samaria and a church in, 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 in Judah, Israel. He wanted one church that was centered around one thing, the power of His Holy Spirit being poured out. That's what He wanted. And so the same experience happens in Jerusalem and it happens in Samaria. So that the church is not disconnected. You know, even Jesus points to that in, uh, with the woman at the well, doesn't he? He says, we Jews worship God here in Jerusalem, and you worship God there in Gerizim. He's pointing them to the division already, and God, God is, is bringing the, the two that were separated together. God wants to pour out His Spirit upon all flesh. Men, women, children, young, old, Jews, Gentiles, even those that we fundamentally disagree with, like the Jews fundamentally disagreed with the Samaritans, 
God says, I'm so good, I'm going to pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Everyone. So my encouragement to you this morning is that we continue to seek the baptism of the spirit, the, the obvious uh, work of the spirit in our lives, and we draw on him as our source of power. We draw on him. We say in this church, we walk by the spirit deliberately, we fulfill the law of uh, accidentally. There's the sense that God wants to do such deep, deep work in us to empower us and refresh us and encourage us. Amen?